Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Steve McLaughlin, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing Christmas Island. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your questions. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and your email address in the form on our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next show is. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website within about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Steve McLaughlin about fly fishing Christmas Island. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. It's Whipray, C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. Before we introduce Steve, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Now, so you have two chances to win tonight for our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Steve's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a $25 gift certificate to Front Range Anglers in Boulder, Colorado. And if you want to visit their website, it's frontrangeanglers.com. And uh, this is courtesy of Steve McLaughlin. And here's how you would win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question will be something that Steve and I talk about during the show. Uh, you must submit your name and your uh, answer and your location using that text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, and uh, maybe you'll win that $25 gift certificate to Front Range Anglers in Boulder. Our guest tonight is Steve McLaughlin. Steve is the owner of Front Range Anglers in Boulder, Colorado, and has been a lifelong fly fisherman. Steve has fished trout all over the western United States and is particularly fond of the small mountain streams of the Rockies and chasing large rainbow steelheaded salmon in Oregon, B.C., Alaska, and Kamchatka. He has also fished many saltwater species in the Florida Keys, Louisiana, Hawaii, the Bahamas, Yucatan, Costa Rica, Cuba, and Belize. And over the fast, past six seasons, he's taken more than 450 anglers to Christmas Island and has fished more than 66 days on the atoll for bonefish, giant trevally, Bluefin trevally, golden trevally, as well as landed many milkfish on the fly. 
Prior to owning Front Range Angler, Steve was a successful senior executive for a software company based in Livermore, California. He ran several different operating divisions over the course of his 30-year career before he purchased Front Range Anglers in 2012. Steve, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, thank you, Roger. Great to be here. Yeah, good to have you. And, uh, boy, we've got a lot of questions to go through on Christmas Island. Um, you know, I uh, Christmas brings, brings back memories to me, not that I've ever been there, but when I was in sixth grade, my father taught me about stamp collecting. <laughs> and one of oh, the places I picked to collect stamps from was Christmas Island. And uh, so I've got stamps from back in the 1960s from Christmas Island, and they had these, they were these big foil things. They didn't look like stamps at all. Uh, sometime I'll have to bring them by and show you. So uh, I'd love, but, to see, uh, love to see those. That's yeah, pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, so I knew about Christmas Island a long time before I even knew how to fly fish. But, uh, um, but anyway, so it's, uh, just a memory Very good. popped into my head. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about Christmas Island. Where, where in the world is it? Well, it's, uh, it's probably the easiest way to look at it is it's, it's about uh, 1,300 miles due south of Hawaii. So it's just about, that puts it about 110, 120 miles north of the equator, um, but due south of Honolulu. So it's a little bit of a hike from, uh, certainly from Boulder, Colorado, uh, but uh, tucked out there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And how do you get there if you're flying there? How do you, how do you fly there? Well, it's easier to get there today than it was, uh, you know, say five, six years ago. Fiji Air runs the, uh, uh, the concession. Um, they'll come out of 90 Fiji, land at Christmas Island, and then it'll, uh, fly from Christmas Island up to Honolulu. And, uh, folks will, anglers that were there fishing that week will be able to get off the airplane at that point. And the anglers that are in Honolulu waiting to go to Christmas will jump on. And so it's a once a week on Tuesdays type activity. So it's about oh. three hours and 15 minutes in a brand new 737 Fiji uh, you know, flight from uh, Honolulu down to Cassidy International, which is uh, call signed CXI. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so you get to Honolulu and then from there three, would you say three and a half hours? Yeah, about three about, hours and okay. 15 minutes, yeah. So, you know, everybody getting from the States, you know, to Honolulu. So it's a, it's typically a two-day process. It's tough to get to Honolulu. Um, you know, you can't do it almost in the same day just because right. the flights don't make it happen uh, soon enough in Honolulu. So we encourage our anglers to uh, jump on a jet uh, either, you know, earlier in the weekend, come out and fish in Hawaii because there's some phenomenal bonefish to get warmed up on in uh, in Hawaii uh, on uh, Oahu and then jump on the 1145 flight uh, from uh, Honolulu down to Christmas. So yeah, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty yeah. straightforward. Yeah. You can't make mistakes on it. <laughs> There's only one flight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's a Tuesday to Tuesday then? Yes, um, yes. Yeah. yeah. Kind of yeah, like when you the go to Kamchatka. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pretty much. And here you're crossing the date line just like you would there. So you, you leave Tuesday, 11, you know, 1150 Honolulu. You land three hours, 15 minutes later, but you're on Wednesday. And then you'll get that day back at the end of the, at the end of your trip. You'll get it back. <laughs> okay. All right. Good, good. So how big is yeah. the island itself? Well, it, it's, uh, it's the single largest coral atoll in the world. So it's got an area of 248 square miles. 
um, and of that, about 125 square miles of, of that island are land, and the remainder, about 123 square miles, is tidal lagoon. And the tidal lagoon is broken into um, uh, the flats that are out that most of the people that when you look at, if you go on my website, you can see it uh, flashing through on, on our uh, webpage. But the it's about 45 to 50 square miles of tidal flats, and then the rest is uh, channels and backcountry type fishing. So it's you know that's nearly you know another 90 100 square miles. So there's a lot of fishing space inside the atoll, and then in addition to that, there's about two thirds of the uh, beaches surround this island that are also you know very fishable for um, the same species that we're going to be getting inside of the atoll. Wow. Now, is it um, is it known for anything uh, other than fly fishing? Is there anything else to do there? Well, there's some birding that goes on, and there's surfing. There's some, uh, I would say it's pretty extraordinary surf on at least three of the points. Uh, I'm not a surfer, so I can't tell you, you know, as an expert about that, but um, a fellow that I've been working with on our Christmas Island trips, Mike Hennessy, Captain Mike, who owns Hawaii on the Fly, his daughter's a world champion surfer in uh, Mike is an excellent surfer in his own right, so he's pretty excited about um, some of the surfing opportunities that exist there if you have the right uh, wind and uh, tidal activity going on. And, and people do make expeditions there, um, you know, as a surfing destination. Um, there's more than 30-plus bird species there, many of which are rare, so people do go as birders. But really, truly, uh, Roger, the, the primary reason for going to Christmas Island is to uh, chase world-class giant trevally and uh, bonefish and triggers and milkfish and, and have an extraordinary, you know, six-day, six-full fishing day, you know, week of uh, fishing there. So does that make uh, the fly fishing business there a, a, a good, uh, uh, you know, thing for the, the local economy? I mean, does that... Yes, it does. Yeah, that's a great point. In fact, it's about... You know, if you were jumping off the jet, you know, about 120 people would be on that flight 823 coming from Honolulu into Christmas Island, into Cassidy International. And about 40, you know, it depends on the week, but let's say 30 to 45 of those people are going to jump off to go fishing there. The remainder of the folks that are on that flight are usually continuing on to Nadi Fiji. So it acts as a, you know, conduit to that. So the biggest activity that happens on Christmas is going to be the sport fishing that, uh, you know, that is going on there. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Now, um, I yeah. am getting some questions in on the Internet here. Uh, Jay Mirakoshi, do you know Jay? He's at the I do not. show tying uh, most of the time saltwater flies, and he's been a guest on my show. Uh, and uh, he says, have you ever been stranded an extra week on Christmas Island due to the cancellation of Fiji Airlines? Uh, I haven't personally, but I but I do know of it happening, and it's happened once already this uh, calendar year. Uh, oh. It happened, yeah, it happened one time last year. And really, when we had the uh, El Nino effect um, two seasons ago, um, we had three. There were a total of three cancellations that happened in the, the space of four months. So, yeah, it's possible. It, it, it's not always a full week. Um, sometimes it's only two days. Sometimes it's sometimes it could be the week, um, depending on whether or not they can get the airplane going. But it truly is. I mean, when you fly into Cassidy International, you look at it and you go, holy smokes, it's a 7,000-foot runway. There's no tower. There's no lights. Uh, the runway and the airstrip were put in um, in 1957 by the British when they were doing their thermonuclear testing. 
and uh, they uh, they had about 12,000 people uh, on the island at the time, uh, you know, going through that pursuit. The bombs that they were testing weren't used on the island; they were used south of the island. Um, but the uh, the runway and the airport itself is is not um, been enhanced much since when since when they were there in 1957. So, yeah, um, yeah. It, extraordinary conditions, you know, will will stop the plane from flying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> what happens? then? I'm just curious now. I never thought of that, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great question. You know, you get another week of fishing is what it comes down to. Um, or or <laughs> you get a few more days of it. Yeah, yeah, you do. Uh-huh. Yeah. I did spend two weeks there in January of, of last year of 2017. And it was some of the best fishing I've ever experienced just because the first week you got a whole bunch of stuff out of the way. Then there's the transition day, which is the Wednesday, um, when there's nobody fishing it on the atoll except perhaps four or five anglers that might be extending for a second week. And then uh, you can you know pursue all the things that you learned the prior week, chasing after them again for the next six days. And it was truly a great experience. Yeah, yeah. And what's the topography of the island like? Is it pretty much flat? It is. It is. I think the tallest part on it is about 22 feet, and okay. uh, you know it's a coconut. It's a coconut pile. Just kidding. Yeah. It's a bunch of shells, but yeah. truly, it, there's not a lot of, um, you know, there's no mountains, there's no hills. It's just yeah. really truly a flat island. Yeah. Uh, and are there lodges, hotels there? What, what kind of accommodations are available? Yeah. The and they're relatively primitive. There's. Really effectively, there's Hickory House, which is the lodge that um, I work with on a day-in and day-out basis down there. There's also two others that exist on the island, the Villages uh, and then Crystal Beach. Um, there used to be Captain Cook, but Captain Cook is no longer working as a angling destination. It's mostly just taking uh, the handful of tourists that might come there. And um, but, but other than that, those are the primary... You know, four places where you could stay. There's a couple of other small places that you can find on the internet, but they're not really supporting any fishing activity. So at any one time, um, just based on the number of guides and the number of boats and the accommodations on the island, you know, about a max of 40 to 50 anglers at most could be on that island during the course of a week with the accommodations pretty, that are there. Are they pretty much spread out all over the island then? Well, uh, there's one by the airport, then there's two that are in the London town area, which is um, where the uh, principal commerce of the island happens, and then there's one on the very uh, north coast of it. They're all on the water, which is very nice. Uh, I was you know, actually, it, depending on – go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I, I was actually yeah. asked, really referring to the, the, the fisher, fly fishers. You said there was some like – Yes. They yes. spread out yeah. all over so, the island. Truly, they will. They'll, they'll be a lot of different places. And, you know, depending on what anglers are striving for, um, you know, because there's also an offshore fishery as well. And we do have conventional anglers that will go and, and want to fish for uh, yellowfin and um, wahoo and sailfish and even uh, giant trevally offshore. Um, you know, in fact, in our programs that we offer, um, most times we'll have several groups of four anglers that are going to want to do it for a half day or a full day and um, and go out and fish that way. So it, even if you had 40 anglers on the island, uh, there's probably four of them to eight of them that are offshore at any time, and the remainder are spread out 
through that almost uh, 150 square miles. So yeah, yeah, that's like nothing. <laughs> well, pretty much. I mean, it's it's very possible to fish in certain parts of the atoll and not see anybody. And and then it's also, you know, you can go to some very you know very popular flats, Roger, like the Paris Flats, Paris one, two, and three, which everybody reads and hears about. And you can see multiple anglers at that point in time. It's fun because you've got these flats throughout the atoll, and then the boats. Uh, and the uh, the catamaran boats act as more or less a taxi in moving anglers throughout the uh, the inner workings of the atoll. Ah, that's yeah. That was a question I was going to ask next: is how do you get a how do you get around the island uh, and fish? So you're moving by boat primarily once once you're there, or there ground transportation? Yeah, depending on the lodge. Um, yeah, in my, at Ickery House, we try to do everything by boat. We'll launch typically on the beach right in front of the lodge. Um, if the tidal conditions are appropriate, if not, then it's a you know about a two-minute ride over to the harbor to jump into the boats, um, and then same thing at the end of the day, we'll uh, you know disembark from our trip, you know typically right on the beach in front of the lodge. But by boat is the best way to go because the roads are very, very, very tenuous. Uh, you know, think potholes, okay, lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> to, to go to go 20 miles will take nearly two hours. Oh and, my God. Uh, so I, Yes, I'd much rather be doing that transit in a boat. Yeah, go from Hickory uh, House, yeah, all the way down to the backcountry. We can do almost all of that via boat, and then you know walk a little bit at the end. But that's what you're doing anyway when you walk around these channels, fishing and looking for giant trevally or bonefish schools or whatever species you're trying to hunt yeah. down that day. What's the ratio of guides to fly fishers when you're there? Yeah, typically it's a two to one ratio. Um, one of the lodges does offer a one-to-one ratio. Um, any of the lodges will let you upgrade and buy into a one-to-one ratio if you choose, but typically it's a two-to-one. Uh, and these guides are really pretty darn sharp. Um, I mentioned Captain Mike Hennessy's name earlier, Hawaii on the Fly. Uh, he and I have been uh, working very carefully, at least with our 15 guides that work out of Ickery House over the past six years, and we've been training them. And I think that the result of the activity and the number of times that we've brought hosted weeks there, um, which we have a hosted group that just went yesterday. That's a group of, uh, of 12 anglers. And that's our 38th hosted week in, um, you know, the past six years. So we've had a lot of opportunity to train these guys and, and work with them very closely. And of course, there's an A, B, and C team, uh, like in anywhere, but most of ours, I would be, I'm proud to say are, you know, A's and and A's and B's, and uh, the C's don't last very long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we got a question in on the Internet from Kathy Crosland in uh, Raleigh. Uh, she asks, how many women are typically in the groups who fly fish on Christmas Island, and are they are they beginners or experienced fly fishers? So great questions. Um, let me answer in reverse order, um, and that is that, just make the statement that Christmas Island, in my opinion, is one of the greatest places to go if you're an expert. But more importantly, it's one of the greatest places to go if you're a beginner to saltwater fly fishing. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but in a nutshell, it's because there's a lot of fish, right? And so any angler, whether or not they're male or female, if they're a beginner, you want success. You want to be able to come tight on bonefish, and you're going to be able to do that on a very regular basis at Christmas just because of the sheer numbers of fish that are there. Um, as far as women on our trips, 
it's typically one or two per trip. Um, the group that's down there right now with the 12 has none. The group that's going next week with me on next Tuesday, we've got two. So, you know, it's it's a hardcore, you know, fishery. So if somebody's going along on a trip and they're not a fishing uh, partner, then, you know, you have to go back to look at the other activities that we mentioned at the very beginning, which could yeah. be some level of sightseeing, birding, or surfing, or just hanging on the beach. You know, you could do that right. too. So, right. yeah, it's, it's it's a hardcore fishing place. Um, given the road situation and so forth, what's the uh, uh, DYI opportunity there, if any? Um, it's not very good. Um, you know, there's a couple of rental cars on the island, and so you can do that. The more typical way that people would do it is they'd hire a driver, hire a truck, and the truck then is only going to be able to allow them to um, go into some of the backcountry areas, which take special licensing in order to make that happen. Um, the uh, Department of Fisheries on Christmas uh, has gotten pretty, I think, aggressive, and it's in a positive way in being able to manage the backcountry fishery. So there's not any um, uh, poaching or netting or other things going on back there. Um, you know, it would be painfully obvious to see that type of activity happening in the middle of the atoll on the flats, but less um, uh, to see that in the backcountry. So it's tough or tougher. Um, all the boats are hired out, so it's not like you're going to be able to hire a boat. Um, you know, and, and they belong typically to the lodges. So the yeah. DIY, I've seen it a couple of times. It's just difficult. Yeah. Um, you combine that, Roger, with the, you know, the weather is going to be, you know, 80 to 88 degrees, and that's going to be nearly 24-7. If you do get rain and you're, you know, on your own and you're not, you know, maybe you're camping. I heard heard of a guy who did that, and, you know, after two days of doing it on his own, um, he asked to be extracted. <laughs> extracted. <laughs> extracted, yeah. <laughs> well, he, there's, it's not like there's, you know, a bunch of motels around the island. There aren't. Right. It is. It's wild kingdom. You know, you're you're yeah. walking on sea, you know, on, on uh, seashells, and it's tough. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned you keep saying the back country. Define what the back country is. Okay. Um, best to look at a map or look on my website. It'll uh, flash through uh, several images of it on the. There's like a 15 slide slideshow that is playing on the website. Frontrangeanglers.com. Um, yeah, right. Front that's range correct. Correct. So inside the atoll, the the flats, you know, they're really obvious. You see them, they're right out there in front of everything, and there's 45 square miles of them, and these are pure tidal flats. Once you get to the end of the flats, in other words, you think you're to, you know, this beach that is, you know, you think it's the edge of the island. It's really not. It's There's channels, and these channels weave through uh, the rest of the island, and They've turned them into milkfish ponds. Um, at one time, they even raised shrimp back in some of them. Um, but really, truly, there's ponds and channels that are all interwoven um, and have some level of tidal driven. But, you know, think of it as like, you know, fishing in a um, in a channel. Uh, although it's all rock seashelled in and the channel might be 100 feet across, it might, only, it might be 1,000 feet across. And um, the fish are going to move in and out of there because that water is going to come up and go down, you know, two to four feet a day um, or, on, you know, on the tide. 
it's slower to get its tide because it's further in and you know through this honeycomb into the back and um but it's it's loaded with fish and it's just really an exciting place so that great area which is about 80 square miles 90 square miles we refer to as the back country it's not really um, it loses its, you know, its, um, its landmass, you know, as the tide comes in and out. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Now, is that a place you're taken to fish, or generally you don't go there to fish? Oh no, you definitely go back there to fish. You absolutely okay. go back there to fish. On any trip we do, we try to get at least two, maybe three days of backcountry fishing in, because they're, yeah. I mean, think about this. There's these milkfish ponds where they're raising milkfish. And, you know, these milkfish might be six inches long. They might be a foot and a half long. And there's water going in and out of the channel where that pond would be. And it only will flow at high tide, let's say. Well, you know who's sitting right there on the outside of that little channel when the tide is high? Mr. Giant Trevally. Why? Because he's sitting there waiting to, you know, kill the milkfish that, accidentally, you know, swim, <laughs> swim into the channel. Yeah, so yeah. it's a prime place for anglers to uh, go and hunt giant trevally. The other thing you'll see back there is schools of, uh, of bonefish, and you'll see, uh, you know, bunches of triggerfish, either pistachios or peach face, um, and you'll also run into uh, golden trevally back there. In fact, it's, that's probably where the bulk of the golden trevally uh, hang out. Yeah. Mm, okay. Good. Good. And just to clarify, um, folks, if you go to frontrangeanglers.com, uh, go to the top line menu there to Adventure Travel, and then Christmas Island, and that's where you'll see the the slideshow of Christmas Island that uh, Steve was talking about. So. Uh, yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so you you just mentioned a bunch of fish. Why don't you go down the list of all the fish that one could target there? Or, or you'd want to target, let's put it that way. Okay. Um, I, you know, a lot of anglers, when they're going there, really are aiming for uh, uh, for giant trevally. And it's um, it's truly a, a very good uh, giant trevally fishery. Um, but what put Christmas Island on the map uh, back in the early 80s as a prime saltwater destination was the bonefish fishery. And it's, uh, it's an awesome fishery. Uh, since they put in place netting rules, um, six, seven years ago, and they started, you know, in earnest chasing or harvesting milkfish, farming and harvesting milkfish, they stopped netting bonefish. So these bonefish, year after year, are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's very exciting for most of the anglers that go there to, you know, not catch just school-sized bonefish that are pounders and pound-and-a-halfers, but actually to find and run into consistently uh, five, six, seven, eight-pound fish, and even larger, even into um, 12 and 13 pound fish. Much more rare, but they're still there. Um, yeah. So giant Raleigh bonefish, um, the whole family of, of triggers, which we've mentioned a couple of times, are really, truly fabulous targets. And we can talk as we get going on this, Roger, about the gear that it takes and flies and right. rods and reels and, and you know, the, the things that we would recommend. There's also, um, besides the giant Trevally, there's other uh, Trevally that are there. The golden Trevally, which is more like a from a rareness standpoint, more like a permit, and from a pickiness in, in either finding them or getting them to eat, much like a permit. Um, they're there, and bluefinch or volley, which are very aggressive, are on pretty much every flat. And then there's some other trevally like barjack and swallow uh, swallowtail that you can find either 
either on the ocean side or sometimes as well inside the atoll. So those are the primary species. I think I've mentioned milkfish a number of times. When you're yeah. on the milkfish, you want the bigger ones, not the smaller ones. <laughs> the yeah, ones that are yeah. 10 to 50 pounds, those are the ones you target. The ones that are, you know, on the flats that are the, you know, powders, that's not, yeah, they don't even eat. Yeah, um, yeah. Hard to get them. And then there's a whole bunch of other things like snappers and Picasso triggers and, um, you know, if you go offshore, I mentioned earlier, tuna, sailfish, and, and uh, wahoo. So yeah. a lot of different species that we would target. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Let's take a quick break, Steve, and uh, we'll be right back, and then we'll, we'll talk about that equipment you, were, you had just uh, brought up a minute ago and see what one needs to bring there. So hang tight. We'll be right Very back. Very well. You bet. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. For After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. That's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Steve McLaughlin about Fly Fishing Christmas Island. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Steve, okay, I always ask my guests, hey, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So um, I know people are probably curious about your business in Boulder because we talk about it a lot on Ask About Fly Fishing. So uh, tell us a bit about what you're doing up there. Sure. Um, well, we're uh, right on Pearl Street, founded in uh, 1982, so this is our 36th year in business. Um, we've got a 3,300-square-foot uh, um, full-to-the-gills uh, no pun intended, fly fishing, you know, store with everything fly fishing in there from rods, reels, uh, more than 2,000 patterns of flies from cutthroat to uh, giant trevally, uh, so huge freshwater and saltwater selection. Of course, uh, rods, reels, clothing, technical gear. Um, and our business is pretty well rounded out, not only the retail store, but we've got uh, 29 guides on staff and it's almost into that season, Roger, as you might imagine, with the way that Colorado is right now. Oh, yeah. uh, so our fly fishing in the mountains is starting to take off really good, and uh, we're very busy with that. And then, of course, we've got um, our uh, travel uh, business, which I started uh, when I bought the business. It, it didn't exist, and we've added it in. And you know, now we're running uh, nearly 200 anglers a year uh, to various different places, uh, you know, throughout the fly fishing world, um, from Alaska to Russia to, um, you know, Christmas Island, where we'll bring, you know, this year we'll probably bring 120 anglers there. So uh, we've rounded that out very well. Um, and, uh, in fact, this Saturday is our 36th annual uh, Front Range Anglers Customer Appreciation Day, and uh, it's going to be a – it'll be a busy day. Um and then Friday night in front of it, we'll have Danny Ashcraft, one of the owners, one of the founders of Catch Reels, will be in for our 
uh, Hatch Front Range Anglers VIP night. So if anybody's in the area and they are interested in meeting Danny and talking to Hatch Reels, that'll be Friday night. And then all day Saturday, all of my manufacturer partners will be in the, uh, you know, in the store. And, uh, all the premium rods that you'd ever want to cast will, uh, will be there all reeled up and you can go outside, take a shot and, uh, perhaps you'll win some of the drawings that we've got going on. We've got a lot going on right now. It's, it's truly the start of the, the fly fishing season. So it's, it's pretty exciting here in Colorado. Very cool. Very cool. Good. Yeah. Um, and your website is your URL is www.frontrangeanglers.com. And I can be reached at steve at frontrangeanglers.com if anybody wants to email me directly later on. Okay, great. Can you get email in Christmas Island? Well, that's a great question, and I would say sometimes, sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, yep, yep. You can't go there thinking that the Internet's going to be perfect. It's not. You know what I did notice last time when I was there in December, Roger, was that AT&T International is now there, so I was getting texts. So uh, when my wife was, uh, my wife Madeline was emailing or texting me, I was able to pick those up and turn them around. Um, our trips, I do carry a sat phone just in case of anything that we might need to do um, because there's really no reliable phone service in and out of there. And the Internet service has been even more flaky of late. But um, surprisingly, we now have, uh, the, our lodge has Wi-Fi, but every now and then it just is not working. Somebody yeah. doesn't listen, and they'll put a picture up, and they'll take the whole network down. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my giant Trevally. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. High res, right? Here we go. <laughs> yep. That's all you yeah. need. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Good. Good. Okay. Well, let's um, let's uh, uh, we did um, Jay uh, Mirkoshia also had another question here. Uh, evidently, he's been to Christmas Island. Uh, he wanted to know when your first trip there was. And then he says, uh, in the past few years, I've noticed the catch rate drop off. What's your opinion on the cause? My last few trips, I haven't seen as many um, huge schools of bones um, like you do in Belize. So, and he wants to know what lodge you stayed at, too. So, uh, lots of questions. So when was your yep, first trip well, there? Uh, not long ago. I, my first trip there was in 2011. So I've only been going there, you know, for the past seven years. But... Yeah. Um, I have had an intensity of number of trips since then, right, with this being my 12th trip when I go next Tuesday. Um, as far as, you know, looking at fish and fish, you know, counts and so on, um, I don't have the perspective, only the historical of, you know, what people had said or had seen, you know, in the 80s and 90s. But, you know, you can rest assured that the bonefish was not just a, you know, hunted uh, sport fish at the time, but it was also a food fish um, for many of those years up until about 2007 or 2008 when the Republic of Kiribati outlawed effectively the harvesting of bonefish. So I think part of, you know, the experience of seeing big schools and little schools has to do with the time of the, you know, the lunar cycle. You can find that on full moons that your flats can disappear in some cases, of large schools of larger fish because they're off spawning in many cases. Um, and that leaves you instead with smaller fish and maybe less schools. Most of the times when we do hosted weeks there, Roger, we try to do them on a new moon 
And uh, so we eliminate, you know, we, we still get incredible title activity, right? Um, but without the, the disadvantage, so to speak, of, of the bonefish leaving for spawning activity or having, you know, a, a moon that is a full moon, we're on the opposite of that, uh, typically. So I, I've actually been seeing lots of schools of fish and, you know, more in twos and threes of big fish. Um, and that's been very impressive for me, at least on the bone side. Um, yeah, I, that, that's what I would say about it. Yeah, um, yeah. okay, good, good. He uh, also wanted to know uh, what lodge you stay at. Well, you already mentioned that, but go ahead and say Yeah, Hickory House. Hickory House is the newest lodge on the island. It's okay. uh, the gentleman that built it built it nine years ago. That is the first seven rooms. The second seven rooms went in uh, about two years ago, and so everything's got air conditioning. Uh, as well as everything's got hot water, which is surprisingly important um, after a full day of you know saltwater fishing um, to be able to get that off you. And uh, it always works; it's never not worked. And the guy's done a really fantastic job, Jacob Team, in um, in managing his lodge and keeping it uh, you know really, 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 I think, user friendly. Is it one person per room or two per room? What's the... It, it, the standard fare there, Roger, is two to a room. Um, okay. And it, they're large enough rooms, and every room has its own, um, you know, bathroom and, and sink. So they're relatively private that way. It's not like there's a communal uh, bathroom that yeah. everybody has to go to, which happens in a couple of the other in one of the other lodges. Um, I've stayed at them all. Uh, this is the one that we, uh, the captain Mike and I, settled on uh, yeah. six years ago because they they get it. They, the guys made yeah. the investments. He continues to do that. When I talk to him about various different things. He adds, so for instance, there's not an AED on the island. There is mm-hmm. now. I brought one. We brought one three weeks ago. And there was, there's not even one in, in the clinic. Uh, but there is one wow. at Hickory House in, in our lodge. Okay, because oh. we brought it there. And I'm just giving you an example of, yeah. you know, his, his willingness to make improvements. That's Is that a huge improvement? Not really, but it's something. It's for you, it is. <laughs> you bet it is. You bet it is. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, wow, that's um, important to know about that. Yeah, so if you have any uh, specific medical issues, you should probably check with someone like you to sort that out ahead of time, uh, right? I mean, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's rudimentary. There's, you know, 8,000 people on the island, and there's a medical clinic, and it's, you know, open air. It's not it's not a hospital like you would normally see. Right. So what we require of all of our anglers that are going there um, is uh, as a minimum, um, and I work with Global Rescue very close on this because they're very experienced in this. But Global Rescue's medical evac insurance is required on on all of our trips. Um, you know whether or not you buy a week or a year or a three year you know subscription is your choice. But that's the only way to get off the island if you have that need um, yeah. between those two airplane flights that happen you know seven days apart. Right. Uh, so that's yeah. you know. Good, word, good. word to the wise. Information. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, let's uh, run through the equipment pretty quickly here. Um, sure. Size, weight, length of rods that you need to bring if you if you want to go at all these guys out there. Okay. Um, so I usually uh, uh, look at it by species, but so seven weight, you know, is, is a decent bonefish rod if there's no wind. If, if there is wind and it's salt water, so you got to figure there's going to be wind at least most of the days. Um, you may be better served with an eight weight. So if you only had a choice between a seven and eight, take an eight. 
Um, nine weight's perfect rod for fishing triggers. Um, not required. You can fish triggers on an eight weight, but you'll wish you had a nine weight. If you got a trigger that's a 15 pound trigger going for his little trigger hole and, um, you don't stop them. Um, <laughs> you might stop them a little bit better with a nine weight with a 16 pound leader or a 20 pound, you know, fluoro leader. On the milkfish, my preferred rod is a 10 weight. Uh, I can explain more when we talk about milkfish later. Um, golden trevallis, I like a nine weight. And on giant trevallis, uh, we used to all want to use a 12 weight, but I found that 11 weights handle, you know, these fish just as readily today's generation of 11 weights. So to answer your question, if you had the bare minimum sticks, you'd have an 8 and 11. If you want to be able to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more effective, I think an 8, 9, and 11 would, would serve a guy right um, in, in his week there. There's very specific rigging, um, in particular on the giant Trevally rigging, that you need to be aware of You know, when you start shopping around to make that happen and make it happen successfully. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that now or if you want to get into it when we talk about species. Um, when you say rigging, are you talking about backing or terminal tackle? or, part of, or the whole uh, Backing to line to terminal tackle. Um, is critical on a giant trevally. Yeah. Well, sure. Um, you know, your giant trevallies could be, you know, 110 pounds, or they could be, um, well, 5 to 8 pounds. Obviously, a 5 to 8 pound giant trevally is not a big deal, um, at least from a rod and reel standpoint. You can still hook and land that on an 8 weight. Um, but if a fish is a 40, 50 pound, which is very common, or, you know, those types of fish, you know, the major manufacturers uh, have come out with world-class GT heavy core fly lines. Um, they're not, you know, the same as the tarpon tapers that we used to use five, six, seven, or ten years ago in trying to stop a giant trevally. Almost every time when you're fishing these fish, it's mono mono. You're you're on, a, on the side of a flat, or you're running up a beach, or you're in the channel, but you're, you know, standing off with that fish, not typically in a boat which means that your line is going through rocks and coral and other things, and, you know, you can break stuff very um, very easily. So, you know, as a minimum, you know, I look at a, you know, a sealed drag quality 11, 12 type reel, like a Hash 11 Plus or Tibor or Able in the sealed drag versions of both of those or all three of those really with whatever amount of maximum backing that that reel allows for and, and, you know, truly the eight-strand coated braids that are out today, like uh, as, a, for instance, the hatchbacking uh, 0.015-inch, and it's 68-pound test, so it's almost the same diameter, Roger, as yesterday's 20-pound Dacron, yet, but yet this is 68-pound test, and it resists rocks and coral and other things. And so that then needs to be uh, affixed to your giant trevally line. And, um, you know, either through a single or double bimini, and um, in many cases there needs to be some gluing. And in today's generation of those uh, those fly lines, the smallest ones have 50-pound cores, you know, 50, 58, or 100, depending on the three different manufacturers that you might look at. And so now all of a sudden you've got a pretty solid um, connection, um, you know, and then to terminate that you would look at, let's say, either 100 or 80-pound fluoro, and maybe it's, uh, you know, an 8-foot leader or 9-foot leader. Um, but that is um, – uh, you reinforce the welded 
loops that come from the, the manufacturers of those flying lines so that you don't um, have a separation at that loop, either at the, the terminal end to your leader or where it's attaching to your backing. And so now you've got a pretty solid connection to, um, you know, to that giant trevally when he eats it. Yeah. Um, he'll have a much more difficult time stretching and breaking, you know, uh, one of those uh, new generation GT lines relative to uh, an older generation, smaller core tarpon line. Yeah, makes sense. Sounds, sounds, yeah, sounds intense. <laughs> I mean, I mean, because of your description, it goes, oh boy, it, you know, you're you're all in when you hook up one of those guys. You know, I mean, you better be pretty <laughs> much. Yeah, you you are all in. Well, I remember the first time I went there. You know, just to, you know, why it was so important. The first time, you know, I, I hooked up, I, I landed the first fish, I landed a second fish, and then um, my line didn't have the ability to withstand the third fish. And so I ended up breaking, you know, right at the running line to the shooting taper, the fly line broke. And mine wow. wasn't the only one that did. And so I've, you know, historically I've only broken two of them on Giant Trevally, but I've seen, you know, probably a dozen of them break. Oh. And I haven't seen any of this, you know, of, of today's new generation GT lines with the heavy cores. I've never seen one of those break. I've seen them yeah. delaminate, but I haven't seen a break. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Uh, definitely uh, want to talk to somebody like you when you're getting ready to rig that thing up. So, uh, um, yeah, lot, lots of uh, important parts there and pieces. Yes, um, we've rigged hundreds of them. So yeah. we, we, we're more than happy to talk about it. We're more than happy to do it. Yeah, great. And uh, what about other uh, types of line that uh, you would take on these rods? Is there? Uh, sure. Um, you know, just to finish on the giant trevally, and then we can slip oh, into the sure. other fish. On, the, on giant trevally, there are some people that do, um, and I've done this a few times as well, and it's kind of fun to do. If you're not, if you're having a slow day, maybe you might want to go searching uh, with a uh, you know, more of a sink tip type of uh, rig uh, on your 11 weight. And uh, so that's a fun way to go explore for fish. You never know what you're going to bring up when you start casting into a channel. And uh, they're, you know, the channels aren't incredibly deep, but they're 10 to 12 feet. Um, and so you can't see the bottom of that, but you don't know what's going to eat. But so you might want to have a sink tip, uh, intermediate sink on something like that. But other than that example, uh, most every other line that you're going to do, use is going to end up being a floater. Um, whether or not you're fishing for bones, or you know, the goldens, or milkfish, or bluefin trevally, uh, you, you know, those are all going to be, you know, typically a weight forward eight, nine, ten. You know, type setup depending on which of those three you're just, you know, you're aiming at. Yeah. Leaders, you know, you scale to the fish. Um, bone fishing, I, you know, I, I like a 12 pound leader, fluoro, nine foot. Um, although there's times when I don't mind it to be a 16 pound, just because sometimes you'll find triggers in the same area that you'll find bones. And if you're rigged, you know, with a 16 pound leader, um, y- that's a much better uh, chance of success. When you um, cast at a uh, eight, nine, ten, twelve pound, you know, trigger, using you know a uh, the same eight weight rod that you were just walking flat with, um, I've seen a lot of anglers, and I've had some success with doing this, Roger, and that's to cut off the butt section of uh, of a nine foot leader, and um, you know, attach a two to three foot uh, piece of uh, forty pound, or depending on the butt section diameter. Um, so that I extend that leader to 12 or 13 feet, 
but I'm extending it at the butt section, not at the tippet section. And uh, that way there's fewer knots between you and, and the uh, and the coral when you hook a fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Good, good. Um, anything else on lines? Lines pretty straightforward, so I think we've okay. pretty much covered it. Okay. Uh, flies, you need to bring your own flies? Yes, there's uh, the closest fly shop to... Uh, the Christmas Island is, uh, you know, the one in Oahu. Um, <laughs> so what you have, what you've brought is what you've got. And, uh, you know, if you, if you didn't bring enough stuff, hopefully, you know, either I'm on the trip with your, you know, somebody else, one of your close friends is willing to share some of their special bugs with you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you've got to bring all your flies. And, and uh, there's a number of patterns. I mean, the Christmas Island special, of course, Moana, Kwafi, uh and uh, the Kaufman uh, brothers back in the early 1980s, you know, that's when that fly came out and it still works, you know, today in, you know, various different sparsely tied weight. Sometimes it's pink, sometimes it's orange, sometimes it's, you know, more of a, a yellow. Um, but, you know, you might have it blind, you might have it bead change, you might have it lead eyed depending on the level of the water that you're fishing in, et cetera, et cetera. So that's pretty straightforward stuff, but there's more patterns uh, today, Roger, that I've found um, over the past five, six seasons that have, um, I, I don't even, personally, I don't even bring a Christmas Island special. I, I fish worms there instead, and uh, it's a, you know, very unique pattern and seems to work very well on, on you know, all styles and varieties of, of these bonefish, and I'll have them in a, uh, a green, I'll have them in a red, and I'll have them in a, in a, uh, funky looking blue color um, and in two different sizes typically size six or size eight and then three different weights either blind or bead chain or you know a lead eye um, lead eye seems to be used more often than not so that's you know I mean no. patterns have changed I think in making pickier fish um, maybe that are getting fished a lot or more frequently um, want to eat something they haven't seen before what kind of worms are these? I mean, does it have a name? Well, yeah, front-range angler worms. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I mean, what, is, what does it even look like? Uh, uh, when, I, when I hear worm, I think of either the Glalo or uh, or a San Juan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah, but we're not fishing tarpon, and, and we're not fishing, uh, you know, Rainbow. trout here. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's uh, uh, kind of a, a little bit of – Different types of kale, tails, but typically like a calf tail. Um, like I mentioned, a six or eight uh, gamma hook, so it's nice and strong. Saltwater bonefish hook, um, black, not you know, not not plated or not silver. And um, the there's a uh, a set of uh, fur on the bottom of this, as well as um, you know the the flash uh, mylar body um, that that this has. And I think there's. If there's not a picture up on our website, you know, we'll certainly put it up there so other people, you know, so people can, so your uh, listeners can, uh, you know, see that. It's it's worked very well. Again, uh, my friend uh, Captain Mike Hennessy developed this product for this fly, and it's it's worked out really well. We've added more colors to it because they all seem to they all seem to work, but the green or the red has been the most popular in that product. Um, it just works. It, that's the fun part about it. Um, We've also got a couple of small crab patterns. Again, they don't have names as much as 
you know, you look, you're going to look at them, you're going to go, wow, that's a pretty simple fly. You could tie that. And you can. You absolutely can. The beauty of it is, is it works like crazy. Okay, I'm going to have to come down there, try some of these in Belize. Please do. I'm going there. <laughs> a couple of weeks, why not try them in Belize, right? Exactly uh, right. They yeah. work in Belize. I've tried them. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, I'll, I'll come down and visit you next week. <laughs> um, okay, a couple other questions real quickly here. Um, yeah. Uh, Ari in Newberry Park, uh, he says, uh, how do you ensure your tackle since the airlines won't cover all of it, and do you carry uh, carry on your flies? Well, you already uh, answered the fly thing. Um, but do you yeah. do any extra insurance on your gear? I don't. I carry it. Um, you know, rods are in a rod tube, yeah, that I carry on, on whether or not it's on the United flight to Honolulu or if it's on the flight from Honolulu down to Christmas on Fiji Air. Uh, they'll let you carry the, a decoder or sage you know, fish, fish pond, Dakota, you know, six rod pack on, on board. Um, so I always carry that rods on with me. Okay. Um, my reels are all in a, in a reel bag that I'm carrying on. Um, I got to have that stuff. It's, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. so I don't check it. Ne- never, never check it. I, it's possible on the return. Um, you know, I'll check it then because it's not critical to, uh, you know, fishing activity that's going to go on, but I never, Never had had the need to insure it. I guess I'm self-insured being a fly shop owner, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What about um, do you carry more than one rod while you're fishing? And if so, what what two rods would you carry? Or does it depend on the day that you're and where you're at? Yes, yes, and yes. So okay. it's a great question. It's an absolutely great question. If you're fishing, even if you're fishing, um, if you're fishing two to one, you've got one guide shared amongst two anglers, that means that one of the anglers is not going to be standing, you know, within 100 feet of that guide. So if you leave your 11 weight with that guide, um, well, then if a giant Raleigh shows up and you're looking at trigger fish or bonefish, all you've got is an eight weight in your hand, you're not going to get a shot, right? So yeah. you've got to carry a second rod. Whether or not the rod is an 11 weight that you're, you know, that you're carrying waiting to see some larger, you know, predator fish, uh, or, you know, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you've got an eight weight sitting on your back and you've got the 11 weight in your hand because, you know, all you're doing is hunting giant trevally. But if a golden shows up, you're not going to be able to take a shot at a golden with, with your 11 weight. You know, you're going to blow them up in a second. You need to get stealthy and go with an eight or a nine weight to make that happen. So there's a couple different products out there that allow you to carry that second rod very comfortably. I mean, you could certainly, you could stuff it in your shirt. You could put it in a backpack. But Fish Pond and Umpqua both make some really good fanny packs that have um, attachments for a left-handed caster or a right-handed caster that allow you to put that rod in that attachment and have it off behind you at a 45-degree angle on your non-casting shoulder. So that's how you do it. Works out real well. Okay. And those are attachments onto your, your fanny pack? Or that's correct. What about, uh, do you prefer a fanny pack versus more of a, a day pack, a larger pack? Um, I'll leave the large pack in the boat and okay. I'll walk with, um, you know, with a, with a fanny pack with, a, you know, two, three waters in there, box of flies and tippet and what I need. Um, knowing full well that the, the boat is going to, you know, show up again in an hour or two or three, depending on yeah. what the agreed to walk was. Some people do really like the backpack, but to me, um, boy, it just, you know, it's tough to cast with a <laughs> the backpack on oh, the that shoulder. Where it wears you down during the day, yeah. yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Um, what about uh, wading boots? 
Um, very, very important uh, on on this island because you have the mixture of sand and um, heavy duty coral, as well as some volcanic. You need to have a. You can't use a, a flats booty, or at least I would highly recommend not using a flats booty. I'd hate to see somebody get a coral infection because the coral popped through the uh, the side of that uh, you know that neoprene. So uh, Sims, Patagonia, Orvis all make some pretty bulletproof um, flat sneakers. Uh, Sims has a new product that, you know, that they call the, the Intruder. It works out very well. It's lightweight. It's got a great vibrant bottom. And um, have yet to see coral, you know, go through that product. So you've got to have sturdy walking, you know, wading boots like that because you're going to wait two to eight miles a day, depending on, yeah. you know, how enthusiastic you are. And if you're walking on the coral in the backcountry, same difference. Um, you're not in the water all the time, but you're, you know, hiking against, um, you know, heavy-duty volcanic outcropping and uh, tons of coral. So, you, you know, dead coral that's on the side of the shore. Yeah, do you fish from a, a boat at any time, or is it all wade? Um, when you go offshore, you can do some uh, from the boat. Uh, the, the island has not mastered, you know, the um, – the, the Ponga style, Belizean or Keys style fishing, where you'll take a, you know, there there are no flats boats there. They're all you know, 22 to 26 foot boats. It's tough to truly fish them. Although, if you've rented a boat yourself, then you could do that. I guess you know you, you could have the boat driver stay in six feet of water, and you'd fish a part of the island, Roger, that nobody's ever fished. That whole six foot line, right? Um, so the bulk of fishing is going to be on foot. Okay. Okay. Um, and most of it's sight fishing, or all of it's sight fishing? Uh, yeah, I'd say 100% sight fishing. Okay. And uh, how do you plan your fishing day with, with your guide? How does that work out? I, I assume you go to different places for different kinds of fish. Is that... That's that's true. Okay. Um, Giant trevally can show up anywhere. <laughs> Okay. Uh, that's the beauty of them. You know, they're they're the uh, you know they're the apex predator uh, inside the atoll, and uh, but they have known hangouts, right? I mean, if you've got moving water that's rushing off of a flat, you know, that's a giant trevally type place. Or if you similarly, if it's coming onto the flat, it um, it can be as well. Um, so yeah, if if an angler is just looking for a general experience and they're just you know going to start out every day hunting bonefish and, and then take what is kind of brought to them. Um, you know, that that's pretty simple and straightforward to do. You'll be moving around on several different flats, you know, throughout the course of the day. But if – let me just back up. If if you're working on one of the weeks that we do that, that, that are our hosted weeks, like the one that's there this week and the one that I'm going to lead next week with uh, Tom Rosenbauer from, uh, from Orvis, which is a Front Range Anglers Orvis week, we do all of that prep work every night. We sit down. I sit down personally with the head guide uh, at the grease board, identify the boats, the anglers, and what anglers want to do. And we interview uh, each angler every day. Um, How is your experience? What do you want to do tomorrow? You know, is there something that you know we need to work on? Um, you know, I really want to go hunt uh, milkfish. Okay. Well, it's very specific. If you want to go hunt milkfish, what you got to do? You know, you can fish milkfish on the ocean side, but typically, you know, hunting milkfish, if you really want to be successful on it, you got to have an outgoing tide. Um, you fish Cook Island. 
and you do it uh, early in the morning when the water, uh, when there's low wind and there's no chop on it, and you hunt for uh, the schools of milkfish. And, um, you know, it's like two to three, four anglers at most in a boat um, go out, look for that, and it's going to be a two-hour deal, maybe an hour and a half, maybe two and a half, but no longer than that. Once you find a school of milkfish, you know, there might be, they may be an acre across. Maybe it's more. Maybe it's, you know, a thousand or two thousand fish. You immediately, oh, wow. as you're casting into it, you're going to blow up this thing and it's going to start forming smaller groups. You're going to chase a group and then pretty soon you're chasing dead fish. Um, but my point is, is that that was not decided, um, ten minutes before the morning happened. It was decided the night before that they're, you know, based on the fact that the wind is, if the wind is going to be low and you got the perfect outgoing tide, um, then we're going to send one boat to go hunt milkfish. Who are the four anglers that want to go do that? Follow me? So, you know, so, so we try to, you know, when we're doing our hosted weeks like this, we've been very successful with it. It's done, you know, against a format and a plan that has proven to work in the past. And if you've got a guy that, if you've got two or three anglers that just want to hunt GTs, well, you got to send them to GT land. You can't send them, you know, to just walk a normal bonefish flat. <laughs> Yeah. If you uh, if you got a guy that just wants to hunt golden trevally, you know you can't send him with a GT rod uh, and a GT guide. You know you want him to go instead with a, a guide that really truly understands what the backcountry looks like and understands um, the golden trevally like to uh, on the edges of uh, coral outcrops and um, they want deep water that they can escape to very quickly. You know it's not the same as hunting bonefish. Um, and triggers just show up anywhere. So if a guy just really wants to hunt triggers, then, um, you know, almost any flat, although some have more propensity for harboring them than others, but triggers, you know, when they put that tail in the air, I mean, you see them from 100 yards away. <laughs> Great during a rainstorm or, you know, uh, low light uh, type activity. So every night we we try to figure out, Roger, would a guy uh, or would a, there's two anglers that are fishing together as, you know, as a pair, what do you guys want to do? And then we try to make that happen. And then are the guides fishing the tides, or are they fishing the clock down there? Uh, they're fishing the tides. Okay. So if the tide is at 6 in the morning, you're out there boating a boat we'll at 5 or something? Yeah. You got it. You got okay. it. And if you're not careful, you'll be out at 6 p.m. still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, it's a full day. It's a full yeah, day. yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about um, each of the fish um, and maybe focus on the uniqueness of fishing for them in Christmas Island. Starting out with bonefish, you, you talked about the average size uh, before. Can you remind us of that again? Well, I'm thinking at this point in time that the average size of the bonefish that I'm seeing is somewhere between three and four pounds. Um, okay. You know, and, and I mean, you can truly go on some flats and um, – you know, find fish that are much smaller than that, um, you know, in a school. But, you know, my choice would be, well, why fish that school? Yeah. <laughs> go, yeah. go to, a, you know, go to Orvis Flat or go to a different flat that, you know, has, um, you know, has a, has, is known to have bigger fish that yeah. frequent it. Is it, um, are they protected now there? You said they aren't, they aren't netting them for eating anymore. Yeah. Uh, but are they protected? Yeah, it, well, the protection is is that, that they must be put back, and that you can't keep them, and that they and so. But nobody can, not even for. 
That's correct. You had mentioned netting before, so even even on a single hook, you have to release. Okay. That's correct. That's okay. correct. Now, does that uh, apply to any of the other fish? Um, it applies to giant trevally. Um, it applies to golden trevally, um, but predominantly the species that you know put Christmas Island on the map, um, you know, was as okay. a bonefish fishery, and so they protected um, those sport fish. Um, Pretty extraordinarily, you know, from what yeah. from what we're seeing, yeah. I, I I think they're on a very good curve at this point in time. Good, good, yeah, glad to hear that. Um, and um, how do you fish for bonefish in Christmas Island? Is there anything different from other places you've fished for bones? Uh, but, but... Well, I mean, because you're on foot the entire time, it reminds me a lot of fishing in the Bahamas. Um, you know, in certain parts of Belize, the your flats are hard flats; they're not. Very, you know, seldom do you find a muddy flat or a soft flat. Um, so, you know, you're you're going to be on foot. You're going to be hoofing it, and um, you can find them on the edges. You can find them in the middle of the flat. Um, you know, it, it's pretty traditional that way. I think, from my experience with it, I think I've seen bigger schools of fish other places. But what I see at Christmas, uh, time and time again is three fish coming at you, three fish coming at you, two fish coming at you, six fish coming at you, not a hundred fish sitting in one school swimming around in a circle. I don't see a lot of that at all, except during spawn, you know, off Paris, um, in water that you can't even fish. It's, you know, too deep. You can't get there. But other than that, on the flats, you know, you're, you're seeing them in smaller numbers, but lots of them, lots of waves of them. Yeah. Sometimes in the backcountry you can see larger schools. Um, uh, had one of my better days ever. Just you know, walk a hundred feet, and the fish just kept coming at you. <laughs> nice, yeah, yeah. So you want it, yeah. Doug McLean uh, in Calgary, Alberta, asks about what flies and sizes you're using. Uh, you had mentioned the worms before, which was a new one, and uh, yep. Christmas Island Special. What other ones for bones that you'd highlight? Yeah, so they're going to be, you know, your more traditionals, your Charlies, your Gotchas, your Christmas Island specials are, you know, what is in most everybody's boxes. The things I add to that box would be, like I mentioned earlier, the, these worm patterns that I think are very productive. Um, I apologize that they, I don't have a technical or a, um, a tire's name for it. Um, you know, we, we just tie them. I have several of my uh, uh, tires that just tie them by the, you know, by the gross. Um, typically smaller though too, uh, Roger. Typically in you know size six or size eight, not size two or size four. They're not, yeah. You're not going to be fishing big, big flies to those bones. The water's not deep enough, yeah. and um, you know they'll they'll charge these things pretty good. Um, so generally, so, what would yeah. you find them in one to two feet of water? Is that six inches to two feet of water? Sure. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. And then uh, let's talk about uh, giant trevally again. Size ranges there, average size. Um, if you had to put an average on it, it's probably 15 to 20 pounds as an average. Um, you're gonna, you know, in any one week, you're gonna have plenty of opportunity to cast at uh, much smaller ones. Uh, you know, in the six to 10 and 12 pound range, which are a blast. They're absolutely a blast. Um, on most trips, you'll get stunned by the ferocity of one of these guys coming up from a channel onto a flat with one-third of his body, you know, like from his eye back 
out of the water, um, looking for prey. And uh, so, you know, they, they range in size. Um, you know, I in December I saw two fish. I don't even know how big they were. They were greater than, you know, 60, 70 pounds, probably 80 pounds. Um, I've seen fish landed uh, on the outside on the Korean wreck and other spots, Vasquez Bay, um, that were pure ocean fish that were, you know, 70 to 100 pounds. So, you know, there's a variety of, you know, it's like anything else. You never can order up the one that you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you, but you take the one that comes down, you know, that comes down either the flat or the channel. And, um, you know, usually uh, it's it's pretty stunning. I I remember Moana, um, I was fishing with him, oh, I'm going to say it was three years ago, right before he died. He was telling me about, Steve, you see these fish, they're all nervous. And we had seen two huge bluefin trawalli swim right by us on the edge. And we were standing on this kind of cut in Nine Mile, which is one of the areas that abuts, it abuts the back country on the south side of it, and on the north side, it's looking into the atoll. And there was a school of bonefish and a school of milkfish in the shallow water, three to four inches away. And they were making a ton of noise. Well, that's exactly what, you know, the trevally are they hear that noise and they come up and you've seen YouTube videos of this stuff where they you know, smash into a group of bait fish. Well, this time it was milkfish and the bonefish there that were the bait fish and two bluefin trevally. And I'm thinking, holy smokes, they're just ripping. And they're big fish. They're 15, 18 pound fish. And they're just racing right by it. And he goes, GT, GT, <laughs> GT's coming. <laughs> coming. And sure enough, before you can even think about it, here comes the GT and the GT's, 90 pounds, 80 pounds, 90 pounds, how do you tell? You know, he comes up onto that flat and just blows up all these milkfish. They're in the air, you know, and, and Moana's going, cast that way. What did I do? I cast the other way. <laughs> I cast to where the GT was, not where he was going. And what he wanted yeah. me to do was, he knows he's just going to come up on that flat and blow these things up and then turn around and go right back where he was. Well, Moana wanted me to cast where he had come from because that's where the fish was going to go again. And, of course, oh. I never even had a chance of hooking that thing. But it was one of those classical things. That, you know, here's the apex predator blowing up every fish. Holy Do you God. hear the music and, going on the flat, too? Like a boom, 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 boom. <laughs> you could. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably in your boom box if you're there, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flick that on when, when you see the giant, just to get you in the mood, you know, and the, <laughs> the thrill. Well, they're not afraid of people, you know, and, yeah. and um, I mean, there's, there's a lot people? of stories about. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't do that. But 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 you can go you can go face to face with them. Um, if you if you got a second, I'll just tell you one other story about Moana and fishing on a. It was a thunderstorm. Yeah, thunderstorm. That that's probably not right. Um, but it was dark. It was very dark, and it was like three o'clock in the afternoon, and so you couldn't see anything. And, Moana picks up these these flat rocks. He starts dropping them into the water, and they're making this boom, you know, the boom, that kind of flat rock noise when it hits the water. And I go, "What are you doing?" He goes, "I'm calling GT." And so, <laughs> sure enough, sure enough, I mean, after ten minutes of you know, wasn't nonstop dropping it, but he'd drop it and wait a couple minutes, and he'd shuffle his feet and he'd stomp his feet, and. Eventually, we had two GTs come after us. Not huge, probably 25, 30 pounds, but at least you had the shots. One of them, you know, turns around, eats, and, you know, you, you, you know you have success when that happens. But it just blows my mind. Here's a fish 
thought that this is a bunch of bait fish trapped up here on this upper flat, and they come racing in because they could hear the thumping. Hmm. So, oh, go, go figure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe they'll start selling, uh, like they have turkey calls. They'll have GT calls or something next. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah, if it was a product, if it was a product, I'd have one in the store, okay? <laughs> you'd have one already, okay, yeah. You got everything in your store, that's for sure. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, Doug McLean in uh, Calgary, Alberta, he says, what kind of locations have you found best for finding free-swimming GTs to cast to? Um, yeah, I mentioned in, it. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say, in general, when you're out there, um, you know, how, how do you find the, the fish? It's all, not only the location, but once you're there, how do you find the fish? Okay. So there's some known areas that you can go to on the island that, you know, if, if you, some of the guides are very tuned to, you know, the places that they've run into Giant Trevally, like on the corner of Orvis Flat or on uh, parts of Nine Mile or Canaan or Run Like Hell or, you know, there's just various different flats that because of their drop-offs um, have easy ingress, egress for these Giant Trevally to get up onto the flat. Um, there's some areas that actually almost look like a river flowing, um, you know, during a uh, an outgoing tide, mm-hmm. and you know, so just like a big brown trout hanging in a you know in a stream behind you know rock in the faster water, but just off to the edge, waiting for the unsuspecting you know little rainbow or little brown to slip into it. These giant trawlers will do the same thing, and so those are some key areas to to fish um, on the end of points and and in, in moving water. Um, with tidal activity, you don't typically find giant trevally if it's just you know slack tide. You got to have water movement, in my experience, um, to you know to get them excited and to get them moving around. And then Roger just throw the whole thing out the door. They just show up, man. They just, they just show you know, up. Who knows why or how they come up onto a flat and there's no reason for it. But here's this fish ripping across the flat, and you just you know get a glimpse of them. I've had them come up behind me. Because they're just they hear the noise, right? And you're walking on the edge between, you know, a sand flat and the coral, and you're on the edge looking for giant or looking for golden trevally, and all of a sudden, the giant pops up behind you, or you know, in front of you. And it's just they can show up at any time as long as there's. So some it becomes water. a fish of opportunity more so than I mean, you you go out there, you stand there for you know, you're looking for half an hour, you don't see any GTs start looking for other fish or are you always looking for other fish in the meantime and then grabbing the eleven uh, when the DT comes or Yeah, different strategies for different people. If you really want to catch giant trevally you gotta focus on it and, and have your eleven weight in your hand and, and actually actively hunt them. Um, you know, then there's the accidental, you know, type where you're fishing for bonefish and somehow miraculously um, you know, you can your guide can strip out enough line on the 11 weight when a GT shows up, and you know actually get a shot at them. Um, that's a little bit, you know, that does happen. I mean, it, it happens, and it happens quite a bit. Um, you know, because most people aren't out there fishing giant trawler; they're fishing bonefish or triggers or something else. So the 11 weight isn't actively in their hand; it has to be handed to them. So, so it just depends on what your strategy was. If you said I'm just yeah. going to hunt giant trawler, well then, yeah, you're going to be actively walking and looking and walking the edges of various different flats um, that have water movement and um, looking for them. Yeah. Would you say it's a, a fish of 10,000 calves? No, not really. No? Um, they're, okay. they're a lot more available and you're going to see them. And, you know, there's almost no reason why on a trip 
that you're not going to get a that, that you shouldn't be able to get a you know 20 pound plus giant trevally on on a trip if that's one of the things that you're focusing on. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. They you know it does happen, um, and you don't have to be an expert angler to pull that off. You just have to have a little bit of luck and have that rod in your hand with the line you know stripped out and a decent yeah. cast where you can you know cut the guy off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we're running out of time here. Uh, only got a couple of minutes left, and we got a lot of fish to talk about. But um, sure, um, maybe you could just kind of highlight, uh, you know, each one of these fish and how they're different. Sure. Or how you fish them quick as quickly as you can, starting with golden trevally. Okay. Yeah. So golden trevally, a lot more rare. Um, you know, you don't find them a lot to begin with. When you do find them, it's it's like wow, um, I found the permit of the island. There are no Indo-Pacific permit here because it's, you know, north of the equator. So this is the closest you can get to them. And they're a crab eater typically. They can be very voracious. They're very, you know, tough fighter. Usually you find them on the edge of uh, where you've got sand and coral mixing up. Um, a lot of times you'll find other fish hanging with that golden trevally that you don't see. So a lot of times people will see that golden, right? They'll see his tail pop, boom, he's eating. And you cast right there, you think you're dropping it right on his face, and all of a sudden, and you come tight. Holy mackerel, and all of a sudden, you got an eight-pound bonefish. Um, <laughs> you know, you didn't see the bonefish, right? I mean, yeah. he was there with the giant trevally because the giant trevally is blowing up this coral and grabbing crabs and other things. So bluefin trevally and bonefish will sometimes be, you know, down um, current, you know, within a foot of where that golden is, and they're just picking up the debris. And um, so... <laughs> what about flies for these uh, goldens and the bluefin trevally? What kind of flies? Crabs? Yep, crabs on the um, golden trevally. Um, they'll eat some large manis patterns as well, you know, size 2, size 4. I like some of the Puglisi patterns on the crab side for fishing for the uh, goldens. But I think lately we've had more luck with a larger mantis, uh, and, and that's worked out pretty well. On the bluefin trevally, They'll eat almost anything as long as it's moving somewhat fast and it has a little bit of flash in it. They can be mixed up with smaller giant trevally. You know, so you might have a school of bonefish coming at you. There's going to be bluefin trevally mixed into that. There can even be small, I mean, really juvenile giant trevally mixed into that, meaning two to four pounders. And those guys will all eat your bonefish fly, and uh, they'll eat it very readily. The bluefin trevally is so aggressive on the flat that, um, you know, if you made a bad cast, fell 12 feet away, and he saw it and heard it, he'll turn around and come over and eat it. <laughs> so they can be a lot of fun that way, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's bluefin and, and golden. And a trigger was something you definitely yeah. wanted to talk about? Yeah. Yeah, the triggers are very they're very abundant, and probably people weren't fishing them years ago. Um, you know, they're, you've seen the jaws on these things. They're just amazing. They'll... They're sitting there crushing coral and, you know, chewing away in those coral beds, and they're knocking up crabs and uh, knocking loose crabs and and, uh, and, and shrimp and uh, some, you know, sea worms and other things. Um, they're, they're very tricky to hook because of the teeth that they've got. And once you do, once you are successful with a, you know, connection to that, to that trigger fish, he's going to race for his hole because there's usually a hole somewhere within 50 to, 100 feet of where that trigger was eating. And if they can get underneath that rock or into that hole, well, you, it's kind of battle over. Um, so your job, once you do get him to eat, once you get it to stick in his gum or somehow miraculously it, 
got you know inside his mouth further and, and your fly didn't get destroyed by him doing it, well, then you're on to a, a pretty good tug of war. Um, they don't. It's not like they're going to get into your backing. They really won't. They're going to run 100 feet, and um, hopefully they've found their hole. If they haven't, then they're going to go off the edge, <laughs> and you got to pull them back. So a lot of fun. They're you know, several different species of them, and uh, they're they're pretty aggressive. They'll eat. They they will eat. But you know, you see them. You drop the fly right on their face. They'll kind of you know go straight down. You'll see the tail in the air. It'll wiggle, and you kind of you can't strip set. You can only go about an inch. And you, and you try to just prick them so that it hmm. grabs you know in that gum around their four big you know teeth that they've got there in the front of their face, and usually it doesn't stick right because it's bouncing off his teeth. So he'll continue to follow you. If you did that little strip set and it was two inches, he'll move over. You'll see him tail again two inches away. And you can do that almost to your rod tip. You know, so they're just, it's like, it's like walking the dog and they just, they really want to eat that fly as long as you didn't, you know, scare them. Yeah. But you know, if you pulled it a foot, you, they wouldn't have that chance because they wouldn't see it again. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Interesting. So they're black. You have to remember that, that, yeah. Way. Don't give up, huh? <laughs> Keep trying. No, no, no. Never, never give up on those guys because they will yeah. follow you all the way to, you know, 10 feet away. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and then you, you'd asked him earlier on about milkfish. Okay, yeah. A very dramatic fish. And, you know, because they school up, if you do them offshore, you got a chance to, to, you know, to get one of these guys. They're moss eaters, so you got to use a moss-type fly, um, typically size 6, um, on a circle hook. They have a very undeveloped amount of cartilage in their lower lips so never have i successfully landed or have seen any that were hooked in the lower lip they've always broken off you've torn through so every fish we've ever seen which has probably been 30 or so i've caught eight myself have always been hooked in the upper lip and uh, that's where the circle hook comes in handy it'll uh, find its way into the upper lip um, a lot more successfully than a j hook and I've even gone to a, uh, a dropper fly, in other words, two uh, moss flies. So one of them is going to be a little bit higher up in the water column, like close to the surface, and the other one's going to be six inches, nine inches, whatever it sinks, you know, foot down. And the idea is you got to cast it into the current, and the fish, you got to. It's one of these things. You got to put it in in front of his face, and it's not like they selectively went after an eight-year fly. It's just that when he opened his mouth, your fly happened to, well find its way right into the little pile. And uh, once you've got that fish, they jump like a wahoo or a tarpon. You could have 10, 11, 12 jumps out of the thing. It'll, you know, on a nine weight, it'll be a 30-minute fight, um, maybe wow. longer if you don't. Yeah, it's a, it is a unbelievably strong fish and does not give up. And um, that's why, you know, people usually lose them. You know, if you've got them hooked in the bottom jaw, you, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pull right through. So they're a lot of fun. And you can even catch them on the on the beach, um, down on the Korean wreck, down on the southern end of the island. That's a very unique fishery. If you see them tailing down there, it's the most unusual thing in the world. It looks like the biggest bonefish you've ever seen because they're, you know, not one of them that's out there is less than two and a half feet long, yeah, three feet yeah. long. I mean, they're, they're so, big fish. So that's the only fly you use is a moss fly? Nothing else works? Yeah. Yeah, a green or brown or some mixture of green and brown or a little bit of black in there, but it's a it looks like a piece of uh, moss that's floating in the uh, foam line, you know, on the surface. And you're usually fishing for them in some kind of current, some kind of movement. Uh, usually on an outgoing tide, on an outgoing tide. 
so you're in the boat, you're casting to them as you see, uh, you know, kind of foam lines build, you know, in an outgoing tide. If you you concentrate on that, you'll see it. They're swimming with manta rays in many cases. So the manta rays are eating the same, you know, foam line stuff, the plankton, the zooplankton that's in there. The best we can come to that is this type of a little fly that um, kind of imitates um, moss. Yeah, so. interesting. All right, well, we'll end it on that. Uh, we've run out of time, and uh, but, uh, tons of great information, Steve. Um, stick with me a bit longer here so we can uh, give away some of these prizes and stuff, uh, including your Very $25 good. Gift Very good. certificate, Front Range Anglers, and... Um, uh, and I, you know, we didn't get into a lot of the specific flies and stuff, but I'm assuming people can contact you at Front Range if they're inquiring about specific flies for specific fish um, that we didn't cover. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, Steve so, at FrontRangeAnglers.com, and not only that, we'll send them pictures of it if, if they'd like. Sure, Or even sure, samples. Great. You bet. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay, um, we're going to uh, do a few things here, give away these prizes, uh, membership to the Fly Fishers International, one-year subscription to uh, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and then we're going to give away a uh, $25 gift certificate to Front Range Anglers in Boulder, Colorado, frontrangeanglers.com. So stick with me just another minute, and uh, we'll do just that. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org. SaveBristolBay.org. And there you can learn more about uh, how you can get involved. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link under our, uh, on our homepage under the section under tonight's show that said, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd uh, really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away some prizes. Uh, winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so on the, for the next show uh, so you, you don't miss a chance to win some of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to, how to receive your prize. So the first thing we'll be giving away is a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International. Um, to learn more about uh, Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. So let's see here. We'll fire up the uh, database here and uh, see what we can find here. Oops, give me a second here. I act together. And looks like we have a winner, Greg Keem in California. Greg Keem in California. Let me just jot that down. And uh, congratulations, Greg, that one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International, and I know you'll uh, enjoy being part of that uh, that, uh, that group. And now um, we'll go for a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, 
And uh, we have there, let's see here, come on, computer. Uh, looks like Thomas Melville in New York. So Thomas Melville in New York, congratulations on winning that. And uh, I hope you're a tire. If you are, you'll get a lot of great ideas out of out of uh, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So, all right. Um, and then lastly, um, and we're going to do a uh, question and answer here for a $25 gift certificate to Front Range Anglers, Boulder, Colorado. And you can redeem this online or in the store. Be sure if you're in Colorado, hey, if you're in Denver doing business, Boulder's only about 30, 25, 30 minutes away and a great place to spend a, a few hours at their shops. So, um, and uh, let's see, um, question, clear my queue here. And, and then we got, of course, we got a whole bunch of more questions come in after the fact here. Sorry, folks, but we ran out of line, out of time here. So, end uh, out of line, I suppose. But um, let's uh, let's look here. Um, uh, name two of the flies that uh, Steve recommended for bonefish in Belize. Two of the flies he recommended for bonefish in Belize. And uh, so, Steve, I'm just waiting for them to type in. First one that uh, gets the uh, correct answer here will win that $25 gift certificate uh, to Front Range Anglers. Okay, we're still waiting. They're typing. And um, let's see here. Come on, guys. Okay, here we finally got um, Christmas Island special and uh, the worm. Will that work for us, uh, Steve? I think so. That's a that's okay. a home run. You got to get a name for this worm. It can't just be the worm. Well, I could. I was thinking about that today. You know, the rock bands. You know, uh, remember the the band, the band. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, maybe maybe the name is the worm. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I call it. I call it the red worm. <laughs> the red worm. Okay. So Dave uh, Cornu in Cotter, Air, uh, Arkansas, it looks like. Uh, Dave Cornu. Uh, so uh, Dave, send me your um, uh, address, and uh, I've got your email here, your name. Just send me your shipping address, and uh, we'll get that over to Steve here, and he'll fix you up with uh, with a gift certificate if you are up in the, the Colorado area, stop by and see them. All right, that will do us for tonight, uh, Steve. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your expertise and your experience in Christmas Island. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Roger. really appreciate the opportunity to talk to uh, all your guests. Yeah, well, great, and I'm sure they'll all enjoy it, and uh, the ones that will be listening to the recordings uh, will uh, enjoy just as much as well. So. Our next broadcast will be on April 18th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. On that show, I'll interview Jason Borger, and our topic for the show will be single-handed fly casting, a modular approach. So Jason's come out with a new book uh, called Single-Handed Fly Casting, a Modular Approach, and we're going to talk about some of its methods. Um, 
you know, he was almost born with a fly rod in his hand. Of course, uh, his dad has been in the business for, for ever. And uh, he's used slow motion video and broken down the elements uh, to make it simpler, uh, to learn how to make that perfect cast and how to teach it to others. So join us to find out about Jason's modular approach uh, to learning how to fly cast, and uh, we'd love to have you. Um, we'd also like to thank uh, Fly Fishers International, uh, Motto Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't uh, forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.